Stand with me if you're physically able, with your Bible open to the book of Acts and chapter number 8. When we left off last time, the first martyr of the church, Stephen, had gone on to be with the Lord under the crushing of heavy stones thrown at him by Hebrew zealots that thought Stephen was a blasphemer. Stephen was what we would typically refer to as a deacon. He wasn't an apostle. He wasn't uh, among the original 12. He was a spirit-filled servant of God who wanted to take whatever life he had been granted from Christ and pour it out for others. And he did so ministering to widows and other duties that were assigned to him by the apostles. And yet he also performed wonderful works by the hands that God had given him. And he spoke in a synagogue one day. And at the end of that message, they dragged him out of the city and they pronounced death on him. And in the crowd that day was a man who would become the most prominent figure in the book of Acts outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. That man's name at this point was Saul. He was from a city called Tarsus. And hear me when I say this. He was the first terrorist to ever come against Christians. The very first terrorist. And we'll read a little bit about him today and we'll launch a little bit further uh, into him in upcoming weeks. In Acts chapter number 8 and verse number 1, the Bible says that Saul approved of Stephen's execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to him, or paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and when they saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, everybody say demons, Demons, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. Say healing. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. We'll cover more in this chapter, but that's enough for the opening reading. You can be seated this morning. I'm going to just pray over you. I think it's really important that we hear the voice of the Lord today. You know, the Pharisees and the scribes had the word, but they didn't have the voice. They had the letters, the teachings, the doctrines. They were Bible scholars, conservative to the nth degree. They had a Bible, but they didn't know its author. And that is the danger amongst us today, to hear the words, but not hear his voice. So in the name of Jesus Christ, as one who stands just for a moment in the role of a priest, just standing before you and standing on behalf of your God and representing you to him in this moment, I bless you in the name of Jesus with faith that goes much deeper than the words you're going to hear. I bless you with the good soil of a receptive heart. I bless you with freedom from doubts, skepticism, cynicism, and excuses. And I bless you with an eager, robust hunger to drink in and taste every good thing that the Father wants to pour out to you in this time together. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning, I want to talk about what we should all expect. One of the things that I'm learning in the book of Acts is that for a lot of conservative Christians in the day we're living, there's a disconnect 
there is in the mind some kind of wall that God never put up between the epic during the age of Acts, what was going on during the time of the first century church, and what is going on now. Many of us were taught that what happened then can't or doesn't happen now, and we were taught wrongly on that. Many of us just approach this almost as reading a story about what God used to do, but he is now on some kind of ambiguous hiatus from those things. And so our expectation level has dropped dramatically. I will risk it and say this, many, many believers are simply waiting for Jesus to return or waiting for themselves to be ushered into heaven via death and they expect no more. And I'm going to say that at the end of the age, as we are approaching it, I believe that we are in the first pages of the last chapter of the story of redemption. I believe that we are in the beginning of the very last chapter. And so I am anticipating seeing some things from the book of Acts come back in an exponentially growing force. And the reason why I believe this is because what I see today shows me some of these things. And it tells me that as it was in the beginning of the church age, it's going to increase until the end of the church age. And so this morning, I want to take us out of the temporary, and I want our tent stakes to be enlarged and our tent of faith to be widened because there's more to fit in there than we currently have. And so let's begin back in chapter number 8 of the book of Acts, and let's talk about what we should all expect. We should expect to see the gospel attacked. You and I in the 21st century should expect to see the gospel attacked. And as it was in the book of Acts, it was an extreme attack. Here we go in verse number one. Saul approved of Stephen's execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. So as Stephen spilled his blood into the waters, now the waters of hostility, between the Jews and these ones called the followers of Christ. Now the waters were chummed, the blood had been spilt, and the sharks were in a frenzy. The Bible says that Stephen, on the day of his stoning, that before there was time for widespread uh, lamenting, there would be mourning over Stephen, but before there was time for the church to react, on that very day, mega persecution, excuse me, I've hurt my shoulder this weekend, mega persecution, took place on a wide scale. The Bible says, and that's the word there, and it says great in the um, ESV, the word in the Greek is where we get our word mega. So it wasn't a small thing. It wasn't some hostile words. It wasn't simply that they were shunned. It wasn't that they were mocked or ridiculed only. It was that all hell broke loose in Jerusalem, coming primarily through a young stalwart who had moved up through the minor leagues of rabbinic Judaism. And now his name, Saul, from the city of Tarsus, who had been sitting at the feet of the great teacher Gamaliel and Saul was the primary facilitator, a young gun among old men. He became the one that started moving out in heated persecution. And the Bible's going to tell us more about this. I, I want to say that this is not simply history. This is also prophecy. Because anywhere the church of God is making a difference, anywhere the followers of Jesus Christ are moving forward in the power of the Holy Spirit and the authority of the word, I want to tell you, that's what gets on the enemy's radar. That's what the enemy fights. He won't fight churches as as business as usual. He won't fight a compromised church. As a matter of fact, he will make sure they continue to be able to live in that compromised state. But when we are Christians filled with the spirit, filled with the word of God, we represent the greater body of Christ, which is always been persecuted in in a hostile territory. The extreme attack began that day, and it was a painful attack. Look at the end of verse 1 and into verse number 2. The result, all the Christians were scattered throughout the regions of Judea, Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles. And then it gives this note too, that devout men buried Stephen, and they made great lamentation over him. And so what began that day at the stoning of Stephen, it began to mushroom cloud. And so now Saul was pressing in and literally enraged. He would say later in his testimony that his goal was to destroy all Christians. He wanted to bring the church to an end. He thought that they were blasphemers. He thought that they uh, disregarded the truths of the ruling Messiah coming. That he hated the name of Jesus. He hated the followers of Jesus. And now the result was is that people were being forced out of their homes under the threat of imprisonment and death. 
And so they were scattering. It's very interesting that the Jesus promised that the gospel would begin in Jerusalem and then move into Judea and move into Samaria and move into the uttermost parts of the earth. You have in this chapter right here, the Judea and the Samaria part of that expansion. How did it happen? Not by missionaries being sent forth, but God allowed a fire to take place in Jerusalem, a fire of persecution. He did not put it out. He did not stop it because those flames are what sent the Christians running into more and more territory. And as they went, we're going to find out they carried the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. But picture yourself, friends, picture yourself being in Jerusalem and you're a follower of Jesus. And now have they not only killed Jesus, but now they're killing his followers. And that means your name. That means your family. That means your home, your well-being is now on the line. And so to save your family, to save your life, you leave everything you know. You have to leave your house behind. You have to leave people behind that you had relationships with. You have to leave all of your earthly goods behind. If you have a a spouse, you and your spouse, and if y'all have children, you take them and you run and you run and you run. And you're moving out of the known, excuse me, yes, out of the known and moving into the unknown. Your whole life has changed because you refuse to back down from the threat that came along with your Christian testimony. You refused to back down. And so you moved forward. It was a painful attack that began that day. And it was a thorough attack. Look in verse number three. Saul was ravaging the church. Look what it looked like. Entering house after house dragging off men and women and committing them to prison. Now, my friends, let the violence of verse number three get into you. Let it touch your soul here for a minute. Saul was ravaging. There's a Greek word there, and it's the only time it's ever used in the Bible. Ravaging. It speaks of a murderous intent. It speaks of a, I will not stop until I exterminate these blasphemous Christians. And he did so actively, and he did so methodically, and he did so from house to house. Somehow he would get their names, and their neighbors turning in neighbors, people spying and saying, go to this house, Saul, go to this house, Saul. And he would drag off husbands and wives, and he would take the people, and he would imprison them. And that was the end of their freedom. Uh, Sometimes, I want to give you this, sometimes it looks like the bad guys are winning, doesn't it? Sometimes if we're not careful, we'll think that suddenly the enemy, the world, the flesh is getting the upper hand. That somehow if if we're not wise and we're not grounded and we're not walking in the spirit, we'll look at everything around us horizontally and we'll start preaching to ourselves, it's over. There's no hope. There's no possibility. When we look at the moral state of decay of the United States of America, and all of us are deeply grieved when we see it out there, and especially when we see it trying to infiltrate our own lives, our own homes, and our own families, we are deeply grieved. And we might say, God, where are you? What are you doing? I want you to know something, that God will take even the evil intentions of the enemy, and he will, if you are patient and abiding and trusting and faithful, he will make all things work together for your good. You who love him are never called according to his purpose. And he was certainly going to do it here. I'm going to tell you, the bad guys don't win in the end. Yeah, I don't know if you believe that or not, but I'm going to say it again. The bad guys do not win in the end. All hell comes against the church. I want you to know something. There's only one entity that Satan fights on earth, and that is the redeemed, blood-bought church of the living God through faith in Jesus Christ. That's his target. Everybody else he owns. Everybody else he's in control of. They're called the sons of disobedience, the sons of darkness. They're in the hand. They were all apart from Christ or at enmity with God, even if they think they're moral or upstanding or conservative or law-abiding. Satan's not going to attack those people because he's got the number one weapon working in their lives, which is the weapon of deception. So they're no threat to his domain. The only thing that threatens the domain of darkness is the kingdom of light. And so that is where he energizes and fuels and and, and ratchets up his battle. He comes against the church. And brothers and sisters, we should all expect that. I, I want you to know, you know the saying, history repeats itself. This will happen again on a much larger and much more intense scale 
than we ever have seen on earth. As a matter of fact, at the end of the age, when the tribulation is taking place, and I'll allude a little bit more specifically to this in a moment, when it's taking place, there will be persecution against those who are redeemed during the tribulation time. There will be tr- uh, persecution coming against them with the unbridled force of Satan and hell and all of those that follow him. And until that moment comes, I want to promise you something. You should expect to see hostility grow against the church of the living God. Expect to see the gospel attacked. But for the glory of Jesus, please don't panic. The reason why these things are given to us in Scripture is so we will know ahead of time that when it comes, we cannot feign shock or surprise. That we are to be grounded in the reality that the Bible presents not in the reality that we've created in our own mind or the reality that's been propagated by sweet, syrupy ministries that tell you everything's good, everything's great, it's going to be fine, you'll never suffer, you're, you're, you're just meant to, to walk through life happy, blessed, wealthy, and healthy, and nothing can ever touch you. That would probably be a valid um, uh, thing to say if it weren't for that pesky Bible that tells you that that doesn't work. And so I want you to say this, I see this also. Don't only expect to see the gospel attacked, expect to see the gospel advanced. Because the attack, my friends, when we respond appropriately to it, results as it did in the book of Acts chapter number 8. The gospel is advanced. How does the gospel advance? I'll pray for that. Um, How does the gospel advance? First of all, through verbal witness. Verbal witness witness. Look in verses four and five. Watch this. They've they've been chased away from their homes and it says, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. And then specifically from the larger group to one individual, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. Now, brothers and sisters, this is important. As they were going, it seems like when they had reached that place where they had laid everything literally on the line, Jesus said there would be none that lose houses and families and, and, and lands that won't receive tenfold more, a hundredfold more in the age to come. And so they had experienced the first part of that. They had lost their land. They had lost their jobs. They had lost their income. They had lost their wealth. They had lost their material possessions. Some of them would have lost family members that would have actually been part of the crowd that was persecuting them. They had lost it all for Jesus. It wasn't a theory. It wasn't a verbal commitment. It wasn't a raise your hand if you're willing to do this. They were doing it with no warning whatsoever. It happened in a day. But their hearts were so solid. Their their spirits were so secured. Their souls were so in love with the Son of God that when the time came, they moved forward and they didn't hide. They proclaimed. They started sharing about the one who meant so much to them. It's a beautiful place to be on occasion when you have nothing else to lose. You know, you don't necessarily have to go there, but God is willing to make an appointment with you at your rock bottom. And my friends, I'm going to tell you, some of the greatest Christians I've ever met in the kingdom were found at rock bottom. Some of you are in this room this morning when you couldn't lose anything else because you had lost it all and sacrificed it on the altar of selfishness and sin, just like I did. And yet Jesus was not deterred. He pursued you to where that rock bottom was just simply saying one thing, you can't get away any further. You can't go any lower. And Jesus says, would you like to talk now? And the first thing he said to you is, I still love you. I never quit loving you. And I'm still willing to forgive it all. And so as they moved forward, they proclaimed the word. They had a message. They used their mouths. They they articulated the truth of the kingdom as passed into them through either Jesus himself or through the testimony of the disciples. They began to tell others as they moved out into Judea. And then it says that Philip went down into the city of Samaria. Now, very quickly here, Samaritans and Orthodox Jews had all sorts of hostility between them. There was religious hostility because the Samaritans didn't agree with where the Jews worshipped in the temple. There was racial hostility because the Samaritans were looked at by the Jews as mongrels. They were interwet. Their, their heritage was an ancestry of Jewish blood and Gentile blood married together. There was uh, religious differences. It was racial. It was religious. It was social. They didn't get along. And so when the Christians were moved forward by persecution, 
they found, at least Philip did, some sympathy there in the towns of Samaria. Because how many of you know that the, um, the, when you share a common enemy, it makes it easier to build a friendship? And so Philip representing the church and the Samaritans there in the cities of Samaria, they, they came together and Philip, not ashamed, not insecure, not worried about the persecution, the next wave of it, finding him there, he began to minister. So let's look at what he did here. The Bible says he proclaimed to them the Christ, but yeah, let me get to that in a moment. And then through individual acceptance, look at verse number six. The gospel was advanced through verbal witness, but it's always advanced through individual acceptance. The crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and they saw the signs that he did. And so here you have the pillars of the apostolic church. You have the authority of the word. In this case, it was the authorized word. It was the, the oracle being pro, uh, preached and proclaimed. The authority of the word, because they didn't have a written Bible yet, with the exception of what is our Old Testament. But to back that up in the Samaritan villages, Philip, who was not, this is not the apostle Philip. Remember earlier in the text, it said the, all the apostles stayed in Jerusalem. And so Philip was the one mentioned a few chapters earlier who had been ordained along with Stephen. These were servants that were glad to do the mundane tasks, so to speak, but they were also filled with the Holy Spirit and they operated in signs and wonders and miracles and supernatural power. And so Philip had the truth and he had the witness of the power of the Holy Spirit and both of those things working together captured the heart of the Samaritans. And the Bible says as he preached to the crowds, in those crowds there were individual acceptances of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the person of the gospel, Christ himself. A quick word to all of us. God doesn't save by family. He doesn't save by denomination. He doesn't save by church. I'm going to break some of your hearts, but um, God doesn't save by nations. There is an inherent blindness in the United States of America that we might be God's chosen people. Let me say boldly, we are not. We are a nation of sinners and saints. And our mandate from the Lord is to move the gospel out through verbal witness so that some of those that are unforgiven sinners can become forgiven saints. But when that happens, I want to remind you, it's always between a God and his individual. The Lord never swept into the Lyle household and said, you're all saved now. He didn't do that in your family. He doesn't sweep through a church. Listen, I thank God that you're here, but I want to tell you something. Walking in the front doors of this church building doesn't make you a Christian any more than walking into Jiffy Lube makes you a car. It is not about the building. It's not about the re religious outward aspects of the Christian faith. It's not even about being baptized or being baptized in the Spirit. It's not about those things. It means you've got to come to a place in your life, my friend, when you recognize there's a sinner, you need a rescuer. You need a savior. You need one who will move to you, not in condemnation, but love and grace and forgiveness and power. And he'll come to you, not to chide you or chain you or, or deny you, but to deliver you and bring you unto himself. And there's not a person in the world that that can't happen to if they desire it. And so through this individual acceptance. Where are you today? It's a great moment to ask that. Where are you today? Where are you with the Lord today? Please don't try to fly under the radar as a Sunday church attender or a moral conservative or a generous, happy person. Ultimately, it is this. Have you ever bowed to the Son of God who is Jesus Christ our Lord, and more importantly, are you still bowed to him? So we move further as we see the gospel advanced. It was also advanced through supernatural power. I love verses 7 and 8. What were these signs that the Samaritans saw? Well, unclean spirits came out of many who were possessed, crying with a loud voice, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. And I love verse 8. So there was much joy in that city. Don't you think? I mean, come on. So Philip, as far as we know, Philip, and he may have had some people with him, but if he didn't, the Bible's only speaking of him. He moves in. He's not a trained preacher. 
He's a man that signed up a few chapters ago to look after widows, making sure they were fed and taken care of. And he was a man that was full of the Spirit, as all of those that were appointed under that task were. And he was faithful. And yet now we see him, in addition to the daily servanthood that was taking place in Jerusalem, which he could no longer do because he had been scattered from there by persecution, he moves into Samaria. And these people had never seen anything like this before. That Philip would encounter people that were literally inhabited by fallen angels. We refer to them in our day as demons. They were literal entities that would inhabit the temple of the body of those unbelieving Samaritans. And who knows what all havoc they wreaked through those lives. All we get is the picture of their deliverance. So as Philip came upon them in the fullness of the Holy Spirit, the authority of the gospel, preaching and Jesus being glorified and magnified, the demons would recoil. They would shriek. And then Philip, with the authority of the Son of God, would command those demons, leave and vacate this person now. I plead the blood of Jesus over this person. And the Bible says the exit of those demons was anything but calm, sweet, and tidy says they were screaming. They were shrieking. Why is that important? Because friends, know this with me, that the domain of darkness doesn't give up like a lot of Christians do. Forgive me if that sounds critical, but it needs to be said. The domain of darkness won't just bail easily, quietly, and happily. They wouldn't even do that when Jesus was commanding them to leave. Do you remember the Gadarene demoniac? He, he lived in the tombs. And, 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 and when Jesus came up upon him, he said, what is your name? And they said, our name is Legion. We are many. So many demons inhabiting this man. And when they knew they were about to be kicked out and evicted out of this man's body, they begged. They said, please don't send us into the bottomless or the waterless places. Please don't send us out into the abyss. And Jesus said, okay. And they said, give us leave. And he said, into the pigs. And they literally fell on those pigs, a whole herd of pigs, and drowned them and destroyed them. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. And what he owns, he does not easily give up on. And so some of you need to hear this as intercessors. Some of you need to hear this as parents and grandparents. Some of you need to hear this of children of parents that don't believe that you have to war for their souls sometimes. You have to fight. You have to take the authority of the name of the Son of God above whom there is no authority. And you have to trust that when you speak that name in a pure body, in a pure mind, in a pure life, you can look evil in the eye and you can say, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you, leave this person. His life, her life belongs to the Son of God. And the demons don't get a choice. They don't like to give up their, their property, I can tell you that. But when Jesus steps into the room, they gone. Says it healed people. People were healed. Say, Jeff, that would have been cool to live back then. I doubt it. Because we're drawing a line of demarcation that doesn't exist. Friends, the way they were living back then is the same continuum we're living in today. The difference is they believed it. And we have been so talked out of the supernatural elements of the kingdom that it has become a, a, a gospel that inhabits the mind only, but doesn't motivate the heart. It, it, it stretches our thinking, but it doesn't permeate our spirits. And there's got to be a con, there's got to come a time, and I promise you, that what God is calling Newbridge Church to be and to do involves this. That involves a return to the pure, organic power of the gospel that doesn't have to be mustered up and it doesn't have to wait till Sunday in the gathered service. But these people, Philip was not an apostle. We don't even know that he was any kind of like ordained official of the church whatsoever, but he was a believer that was full of Jesus. And when he moved in the domain of darkness, he believed that what was in him was greater than what was in the world. Say, so moved in power. I want to tell you, some of what we should all expect is we should expect to see manifested healing. We should not be awkward about it. We should not apologize. I know it provides a great tension of faith sometimes when we believe and we believe and we believe and it hasn't happened yet or it didn't happen. I, I, I can't explain all of that to you, but I, what I want to tell you is this, is that as we pursue Jehovah Jireh, as we pursue Jesus, the great physician, as we understand that he said, I am the same today, yesterday, yesterday, today, and forevermore, I am the Lord your God, I do not change. How in the world 
Can we risk taking one of the prominent features of his earthly ministry and just declare with no scriptural basis, he doesn't do that anymore? Do you know why we declare that? Because we're not seeing it. But do you know why we're not seeing it? Because we don't believe it. We started the cycle. He's just leaving us in it until it gets so intense that we say, God, break this cycle where we see malady and affliction and, 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 and crushing in the body mental disabilities and addictions and all of these things from which people need deliverance. Lord, crush our unbelief out of us. Friends, I'm just telling you, Dustin and I, we're just at that place. God's calling Dustin and myself to some deep pursuit of him. And I hope if I can just throw this in, because listen, We want to lead you and we want to serve you, but I can promise you something. Apart from your regular prayers, I don't think we can do everything we need to do. And so your pastors are asking you, keep, don't feel sorry for us. Be intentional. Be be a a committed intercessor. Pray for us as often as you can, because I'll tell you, any good that he pours on us is going to spill right onto you. And that's our desire. Um, I want to give you something. Before we move to the final point, in Acts chapter number 8, these first couple of points, we see that we should expect to see the gospel attacked. It happened then, it will continue to happen, and it's going to be growing, and yes, it will come into the United States of America. It will. We are not immune. Except for the remnant of the believers in the United States of America, we have no other ground to stand on. Listen, and I'll say this to the unbeliever. And our mission is for your benefit if you're an unbeliever, either watching or listening or in the room right now. Our mission is for his glory, but it's actually the mission he gave us is for the benefit of the unbeliever, unbeliever presently. That we, we may bring the gospel to you, that your heart may be quickened by faith, that you may say yes to the Son of God. And when that happens, these, these five components of, of the gospel, the, first you've got to know the gospel facts. And I'm telling you, part of the go- gospel facts is that you were born a sinner, you will remain a sinner until Jesus Christ changes your nature. And then the second part is not only facts, but fear. When you hear that you're a sinner and you understand that that sin invites the judgment of God and it has currently separated you from your God, no matter what level you consider yourself in the sin spectrum, I want to tell you, anybody outside of Christ is under present condemnation and that provokes fear in you. But don't give way to the fear and and just simply accept the fact. There are also the third part and that's faith. That means when you recognize that the same holy God that you've offended is the same holy God that's paid your ransom, and offering you pardon. There must be a, a faith that says, I will trust him. My life is not my own. I was dead without him, separated without him, but I trust that Jesus Christ came and paid the price so that that wall between me and God could be taken away. And I believe Jesus Christ is the son of God. And I believe he's the Lord. And I submit myself in reverent faith, in a moment of trust, I say yes to you, Jesus. That's faith. And after faith, almost simultaneously with it, is forgiveness. That's the fourth part. The facts, the fear, the faith, and then the forgiveness. And that is the comprehensive washing away of all of your guilt. Let me just speak to those of you who have experienced it. I just want to remind you today, uh, you're not carrying around last week's mistakes with you. If you are, you don't have to. You're not meant to tote that luggage that you have been comprehensively, if you've repented and forsaken the sin, comprehensively forgiven. You are accepted in the beloved. You are complete in Jesus Christ. Though your sins were as scarlet, they have been made white as snow. And so you stand before the Lord now with nothing for the devil to uh, legitimately hurl at you. So don't do his job for him. Some people say, yeah, I don't have to listen to the accuser. Well, if he takes the day off, don't you supply the substitution and be the voice of accusation on yourself. I think a lot of Christians haven't stepped into their destiny yet because they're still trying to do penance for their past. And that fifth thing after forgiveness is freedom. That's when you begin to live that abundant life that Jesus promised. I think a lot of people are caught between forgiveness and freedom. You're forgiven, but you're not free. That means you're pardoned, but you still don't know your purpose. That means you're perpetually hungry, but believing that uh, you're never going to be filled. But the gospel brings all of this to pass on our lives. When we look in the Word of God, and I'm teaching this passage in Revelation 7, 
this coming Wednesday night. We're going through the book of Revelation on Wednesday nights, highlighting worship passages. And in chapter number seven, there's an incredible worship passage that involves the tribulation saints. But when we talk about this continuum of attack on the gospel, paralleling advance in the gospel, it even occurs in the tribulation. These won't be in your notes, but just listen to this. In Revelation chapter number 7, you can write it down, maybe read it later. Verses 4 through 11, John is, is getting this vision still continuously. And he says, I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. And after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that nobody could number from every nation, from all tribes and people and languages, were standing before the throne and before the Lamb, and they were clothed in white robes, waving palm branches in their hand, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to His Lamb. Now friends, why is that important? Because that testimony is the testimony of the martyrs that died during the tribulation. As Satan is unleashed on planet earth, as judgment falls on planet earth from God, and Satan's activity is stirred into an unprecedented frenzy, there will be a level of warfare brought against those who profess Jesus Christ, and they will be killed during the tribulation in terrible ways. Some beheaded, some crucified. It's all there in your Bible. They will be slaughtered. And 144,000 Hebrew witnesses in the, in the context of the greatest persecution the church will ever know, 144,000 Jewish people who have come to the Messiah during the tribulation time, they are going to be advancing the gospel. So watch this. This is what you should expect to see. That as the fury of Satan rises with every generation, as he knows that his time is getting nearer and nearer and nearer, he will exponentially increase his antagonism, his persecution, and his warfare against the people of God to the extent that when the last seconds of his earthly existence are coming to an end, his number one plot is still to do this, destroy everything that reminds me of this one named Jesus who I could not defeat. Yet the beauty of it is this. In that kind of context, there's 144,000 witnesses saying, we have to advance the gospel of the kingdom. We have to advance the gospel of the kingdom. If it was there at the beginning of the church age, Acts, the book of Acts, chapter 8, we're reading it, and it's there at the very end of the church's history on earth, why do we think it won't be here now? See, that's what I'm trying to do this morning. I'm trying to let the Lord just use me to say, open your eyes and expect it. We can either choose safety. We can either choose the milk toast version of Christianity, which has no hard edges and has no, no bite to it. And we can gloss it over with some, some religious schlacking mention the name of Jesus to sanctify what it is that we're doing. We can do that and we'll be like many other, many other gatherings and churches and bodies. Or we can say, Jesus, we see what you've done. We know what you're doing and we know what you're going to do as it's revealed in Scripture. So Lord, prepare us to expect the attacks and Lord, prepare us to engage in the advance. How is it done? It's done by me and you and every other believer. It's not done by hired clergy. It's not done by the professionals. Uh, my, my personal belief is, and you can disagree with this if you want, is that um, if the Lord Jesus does not return in the next 20 years, I believe what we're doing this morning will be outlawed in the United States. I believe that. And so the importance of home groups and house churches, right now it's luxury, right now it's an extension of a ministry, but what we sense the Lord doing not only here, but in so many churches that we network with, we're sensing that leaders are being called to, to, to um, advocate and animate house churches because we believe that there will be ultimately a return to that kind of formatting of how the church functions. Brothers and sisters, I know this is not, oh well, I think Dustin prayed. Lord, we're not here to have our ears tickled. And uh, it's good of God not to leave us in that state of being tickled and pleased and coddled and patted. But he's preparing us for war. Yes. 
It's not a military war. It's a war that's been going on since the Garden of Eden. But it is intensifying. And it's coming to a city near you, I can tell you that. So let's get down into verses 12 through 17. And I, I guess I'm just going to quit there. I won't even do my last point. We see the gospel accepted. We see it attacked. We see it advanced. And we see it accepted. Verse number 12 tells us the objectivity of the message. The message is not simply God loves you. We have an objective message, church. When they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Okay, when Philip went in, he didn't just go around handing out daisies and saying, God loves you. Smile, God loves you. Isn't God good? Ain't God good? Oh, he's so good. Isn't God good? That wasn't the message of Philip. Philip went in there and he told them that there was a clash of kingdoms. That the kingdom that they belonged to was the aggressor in one sense, and it was also the defeated kingdom. That as unbelievers and followers of everything but Jesus Christ, the Samaritans were dying in their ignorance. And so he presented them to them, the one who could impart life to them. As they were dead, they didn't need a band-aid. They didn't need to be propped up. They didn't need commands saying you ought to do better. They needed life. That's what dead people need. And the good news involves a portion of bad news. The bad news that makes the good news good is this. The bad news is that we're lost. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. We're children of the devil. We're children of hell. Aren't you glad you came this morning? That is what the bad news is. That's every single person. That is every single person born under the sun. We come into the world and we are fallen by nature and it doesn't take long where we start becoming manifest that we are sinners by choice. How many of you have ever looked at your two-year-old and said, she's a sinner? <laughs> Some of you are like, how dare you say that? Well, listen, my friend, have you ever told them not to do something and they know what you're saying and they're saying, let's see what mama does. And they do the very thing. That, what, you know what we call that? It's not cute disobedience. It's the manifestation they have a rebel inside them. Foolishness is bound in the heart of child, and the rod of correction drives it away, according to Solomon. And so I, I, I know, man, this is great, because now I don't care if I'm making anybody mad. You, you, just, it's, it's kinda, you, you, you get that breakthrough moment in a message, and you're just like, I've already hacked them off. Let's just go for it. But listen, this is important stuff. Because the reality is, is I'm trying with passion and precision to counteract the, the, the disgustingly bastardized gospel in our nation. Where, where, where they don't tell us we're sinners. They tell us, try better, join our church, get dunked in the pool, stop cussing, don't go to R-rated movies, put away the tobacco, try not to get drunk on the weekends, stop sleeping around, I'm sure God will accept your application. And I'm going to tell you something. That is a bastardized form of the gospel. And, and it's being propagated. So I want to come in and do my part to counteract that and say, hey, anybody that will recognize their fallenness and their spiritual state of death, that they can't rescue themselves, and that they've committed high treason against God by even the tiniest frame of a violation that defiles his holy law. If you offend in one point, you've broken the whole thing. So no man can declare his innocence before God. But Jesus came and he lived the innocent life. He lived the perfect life. He lived the broken life and the humble life and the sacrificial life. And hallelujah, as the Lamb of God, he lived the substitutionary life so that when he gave that life, he had no sins of his own to die for. So the blood that was spilt on the cross of Calvary was sufficient to the Father to be able to declare, my son has paid the price. Jesus said on the cross, it is finished at the resurrection. The Father said, amen it is. And if you will come to him today, my friend, with no bargaining, with no excuses, nothing in your hand you bring simply to his cross you cling, you come to Christ and say, I bow before you, Lord, here is my life, it now belongs to you. And in that beautiful moment, the message is no longer something hitting your ears, it's penetrated your heart. And you are made a new creation in that very moment. That's the objectivity of the message. No more vague gospel stuff. Say, I, I don't witness one-on-one -on -one like I'm preaching to you now. That would send people running. I don't scream when I witness. I don't, I don't yell. This is to exhort the saints. But I, I do want to tell you this. No matter what my outward demeanor, my inward commitment is, tell them the truth. They need it. And if they, if they believe in anything less than the truth of the gospel, they're not saved. 
And yet in the church growth generation, in the pack the pew Sunday mentality, and the numbers counting and the bean counting and all of the stuff, that the outward stuff that, that so many ministries are founded upon, um, there, there's just the need for one of us to raise our hand and just say, yeah, but is anybody being saved? Is, is anyone being saved? So we go further. I don't have much further to go, so. Look at the openness of the offer in verse 13. I, I really just can't read it, but it goes back to this one named Simon. I'm, I'm just going to preach this, go to the last point, and we're going to be done. So, so Samaria, signs, wonders, massive conversions, healings are going on. The power of God has entered a city. Now, God may not save an entire city in one fell swoop, but he doesn't mind uh, coming in and habitating in a city for a little bit. That's why we pray for our region. We're praying that God does something in metro Atlanta, that those that hear it, their ears will tingle. We believe that is going to happen. But in the midst of all of those people that were believing, believing, there was a superstar living in Samaria. Simon, the Samaritan sorcerer, he trafficked in witchcraft. He boggled the minds of simple people with magic, as it's shown here. We're not given all the details. My guess is that some of it was demonically fueled. Some of it may have been sleight of hand. But whatever, he had had an anchor, a, a stake in the ground in this region for a long time to the extent that not only did the people think he was great, he walked around saying, I am Simon the Great. So he was an idol in many hearts, and he was definitely an idolater in his own heart, and his favorite place to bow down was at the altar of self. And so when Philip comes in, just a backwoods Hellenistic Jew, Philip comes in, and he's, he's nothing special to look at, except that you know he's curing people of disease, except he's casting out the devils. And then when John and, P, uh, John and Peter come up from Jerusalem, we didn't read those verses, John and uh, Peter from Jerusalem had heard about the revival in Samaria, so they come up. And this is amazing. As they came up, they're finding all these converts of Philip, but they begin to notice something. None of them had been baptized in the Holy Spirit. And so John and Peter come up, And they say, have you received the Holy Spirit? And the answer was no. So John and Peter, now two apostles, now taking center stage, they lay their hands on people. And the Bible simply says in Acts chapter 8 that the people began to receive the Holy Spirit. If it's anything like the other accounts in the book of Acts, there would have been a manifestation of some sort that accompanied the receiving of the Spirit so that everybody knew something amazing had taken place. And Simon sees Peter and John doing this. And, and he says, hey, I'm hanging out with Philip. I believe in this, this one name. Jesus was it? I believe in Jesus. I, I want to be part of this because Simon wanted to attach himself to whatever was the biggest attraction in the city. So since Philip had become the biggest attraction, Simon got in on it. And the Bible says that when Peter and John laid their hands on people and people received the Holy Spirit, that Simon got a private audience because, of course, he's the big guy in the city. And he says to Peter, he says, hey, how about I put a little extra in the offering plate and you go ahead and zap me so that when I put my hands on people, I can do what y'all been doing. It's exactly, read, read, the, read the passage. It's exactly what happened. Um, I'm going to give you a couple things. I'm going to stay away from the outline because I'll never finish. So if you're taking notes, my apologies. Here we go. Peter looks at Simon. Well, the Bible says this about Simon. Don't forget. The Bible says he believed. The Bible says that he attached himself to Philip. So he believed on some level the words about Jesus. And then he attached himself to a group of people who believed. But when the moment came between being a humble recipient and seeing himself as the one in need, he saw something that triggered the core of his heart. And the core of Simon's heart was, I want power. I, and here's the backstory. He had been empowered in that city. Nobody else was, had, I mean, look at his nickname. He is the great power of God. And he saw a power he didn't have. All he wanted was power from God. He didn't want God. He wanted power from God. So his belief was superficial. You said, Jeff, how can you make that judgment? I didn't. Peter did. The same passage of scripture. Peter hears Simon say, uh, how about I pay for a little bit of that power? And man, you talk about a, un, a politically incorrect answer from Peter. Let me tell you how it reads in the Greek. You may not like this. It reads, you and your money go to hell. That's what Peter said. 
He talks about perdition and perishing. Peter literally said, you and your money go to hell because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased. And then Peter, that's the bad news. Somebody, when Peter tells you you're headed for hell, that's really bad news. But Peter, knowing the gospel, gives him the good news. He says, repent right now and ask God to forgive you so that you don't perish in this iniquity. That's the good news, that there's forgiveness. Simon is never recorded as praying for forgiveness or repenting. As a matter of fact, extra-biblical history tells us that this very Simon is the one who shortly thereafter founded the heresy called Gnosticism, which plagued the church. Even to this day, if you read history, especially history of the Roman Catholic Church, there's a practice called simony. Simony. It's the buying with material wealth, presumably buying favors from God through material wealth. It's named after him. Why, why do I even bring this up? Because friends, that's the other thing that you should be prepared to see. We should expect to see the gospel attacked. We should expect to see the gospel advanced. We should expect to see the gospel accepted. Stop being afraid that they're going to reject you. Stop that. Most people reject the gospel. You're just the messenger. You didn't write the bill. You're just offering it. The fourth thing is we should expect to see the gospel adjusted. Not by the church, but by those who try to infiltrate the church like Simon. How about we tweak it here for material profit? How about we turn it this way for a little extra power, position, and privilege? How about I scratch your back, you scratch my back? How about a little quid pro quo, and we'll just keep it on the down low? And friends, I'm going to tell you. Matter of fact, worship team, come on up, because I will never stop. We're there. Don't leave what is true because of the blatant propagation of what is false in the church. The enemy is going to make sure that there's more press on the fallen minister than there is on the thousand that never fell. In your, in your community, there's people that are so sick of the church, and one of the primary reasons they're sick of it is because they have watched so much false happen, but it's amazing. Even with all of the false stuff that's happened, what, what we fail to realize is that there is so much more faithful stuff that is happening. But what's propagated in our culture is all about the falsehood, all about the falling, all about the, 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 the manipulation, the deceit, and the fleecing. And so what we've got to realize is those adjustments are sought to be made on the gospel and the church, but it doesn't ever have to find us. And so in the name of Jesus, live with a holy backbone. And that backbone will be filled with the marrow of love. And we will go out and we will be strong and we will be bold and we will be courageous. And we will love those that may not love us back. But in the name of Jesus, we cannot change what we've been given by the master. Because what's been given to us by the master is the only hope of the world today. So follow him with all of your heart. And as you follow him with all of your heart, bring others with you. Amen. Amen.